0: You're listening to a DM podcast.
1: Just a quick warning this podcast
0: series contains discussions about crime, trauma, sexual abuse, drug use, and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. I used to rob banks in the 80s and 90s and did 23 years in prison in three different states. It took 30 years to talk about the sexual abuse that happened to me and the spiral into crime, addiction, and depression that all occurred as a result. Now, having turned my life around, I talk openly to inspirational people about trauma, survival, transformation and hope. I am Russell Manstar, and this is The Stick Up. (music) Keith Banks is one of Queensland's most decorated police officers. He was in Queensland Police Force for 20 years, going undercover during the most notorious corrupt period in Queensland, when Sir J.B. Ockie-Peterson was Premier. Today, Keith is a staunch advocate for decriminalising drugs. He is also a man who has great experience with his own trauma and how he's dealt with that. Now, talks about resilience, trauma, PTSD, and how transformation is possible. It's an honour to have you on the show, Keith Banks. Welcome to the Sticker,
1: Russell. Pleasure to be here,
0: mate. Mate, just uh, where did it all start? Where'd you grow up,
1: mate? Uh, geez, where did it all start? That's uh, a long time ago, mate. Unfortunately. <laughs> um, I grew up in the bush in Queensland. Um, initially, I think I was probably three or four years old, maybe a bit younger. Um, my mum had divorced my natural father and uh, we moved back with her parents in a little town called Tambo near um, near Charleville, out in the west. So I think there were about maybe 300 people.
0: true, the, the tree of knowledge at Charleville? I bark Olden, Bark Olden.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Tambo's in between Charleville and Augathella. Yeah. Orgathello yeah, and black Blackhall,
0: sorry. Orgafella, I was listening to a Slim Dusty song the other day, and Orgafella, he, he mentions that in there. So I'm just giving up my music taste. I'm sorry. I apologise.
1: I'm scarred by country music, mate. It was thing I was allowed to listen to in the
0: um,
1: in the sec in mum's second marriage. So uh, I think I rebelled and went straight into Black Sabbath.
0: <laughs> <laughs> So, growing up in those sort of, some of these towns, I, I, look, I've got a bit of a, uh, an insight into your upbringing, and, um, mate, you grew up in some tough, fighting men towns.
1: Yeah, I did, mate, I did. My, um, my granddad and uh, my three uncles were, were drovers. Um, granddad was a bullocky in his early days, so you can imagine the calibre of blokes they were. Yeah. Um, good, hard, tough blokes, but just genuine blokes as well.
0: And did they play a significant part in your upbringing?
1: They did, mate. It's um, you know, my mother remarried uh, a, a violent, um, drunken, wife beating piece at work. Um, and uh, and my my three uncles and my my granddad particularly were yeah, just good, positive male role models. They didn't realise, I'm sure, how bad things were in um, in our domestic situation because you know we sort of moved around quite a lot.
0: If they did, so, do you think they would have intervened?
1: I look, my my. Uh, namesake Uncle Keith was uh, whilst he was a tough bloke, he was a very gentle, gentle bloke. He probably would have intervened verbally. I think the other two might have been a little more assertive.
0: <laughs> <No>. put, <laughs> um, put it- certainly,
1: Pop, certainly Pop would have had a crack. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: It's a horrible thing. Like I think that's where your most probably your trauma starts witnessing the you know the domestic violence stuff, and that's that that's that sort of thing on a young impressionable kid carries some serious scars.
1: Oh, mate, absolutely. I've only just, it's only in the last few years I've come to realise that, actually, mate. I, um, I spent most of my life uh, either putting it away or, uh, or putting up that facade that, oh, well, I had a tough childhood but it didn't affect me too much. Um, and it's only, you know, in, as I say, the last sort of probably three years I've realised that I've got, I've got trauma definitely from a childhood and that was, um, that was added to by my police experience as well.
0: So, do you think seeing that domestic violence formed will sort of give you a bit of drive to want to become a policeman?
1: Without doubt, yeah, without doubt, mate. I, look, I, I was keen on the army. Yeah, you know, I'd grown up. I'd grown up walking on eggshells with my uh, my stepfather. It was one of those. You know, kids are resilient, and kids will adapt to their environment. You know, and I just adapted, and I thought, if I don't do the wrong thing or, or break some rule or whatever, I'm not going to get a flogging. So, you just learn very quickly and um you know you adapt to just shut up not say anything don't do the wrong thing etc but as i was as i went through school i joined the army cadets in grade eight and back in the days when i was only telling my my kids a little while ago that you could actually take a 303 rifle on your back strap it across your back and ride your bicycle home and uh and go home and practice because i was apparently not apparently i was a good shot.
0: Imagine doing that now, the TRG would turn up and, and there'd be a siege at your house, wouldn't there?
1: That's right. <laughs> That's exactly right. It's hard for people to imagine, mate, you know, because as I say, year eight, year nine, I started shooting and, uh, and had a good natural ability. And yeah, that was one of the things I think that, you know, it made me feel part of a tribe, I guess, um, which is what I talk about now a lot. But yeah, you just uh, take the bolt out, throw it on your back, ride home, practice in the backyard. Um, take it back to school, you know, the next Monday or whatever.
0: <laughs> I, I told a bloke yesterday in a podcast that I can remember a time when you could buy pump-action shotguns at Kmart, and he, he didn't believe me.
1: Oh, spot on, mate, particularly in Queens. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if he's listening, Russ, I'm here to back you up. Man, yeah, wow. <laughs> mate, everybody, everybody where I grew up had a gun, whether it was a twenty-two rifle or a pump-action shotty or, um, you know, some cases uh, a Mini-14. Um, but you could just stroll into Kmart and buy anything you wanted. Pretty sure in Queensland, you didn't even know to show a driver's license wow. back in the day.
0: So what age were you when you joined the police force?
1: Mate, I, I joined the year I turned 17. And, uh, and I had, as I was saying before, I had my eye on the army. I, once I got into that Army cadet system, I just fell naturally into it. I liked the whole positivity of it, the the connection. The, um, the tribe is a word I'll, I'll use again today a lot. I really did very, very well. I topped my cadet under officer course and um, and I could have probably been in the running for Duntroon, or as it is now, the Australian Defence Force Academy.
0: And that's for officers, isn't it?
1: Officers, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, look, I wanted to get in there because they paid for your degree as well. And I remember thinking in those days, you know, I'm growing up in caravan parks and, and the housing commission areas, and not there's anything wrong with all of, all of that, but I just didn't want to end up like my surroundings, like my stepfather. So I thought, you know, they'll pay for a university degree, That's a, that's an escape hatch as well. But I couldn't spend another 12 months in that environment, mate. So, and I'd wanted to be a cop as well. I, I just wanted to do something that I could help people, mm. protect from bullies. And, and you, you know, it doesn't take a shrink to figure it out, does no. it? No.
0: And you developed that pre- protective nature from what you'd seen uh, happening to your mother, yeah?
1: Oh, uh, yeah, uh, you bet. And and the other the other part, mate, What I, I was pretty badly bullied when I was all through school as well, and it's a pretty common story, I think, with a lot of... Uh, A lot of young people that move from town to town. Yeah. Um, So I was being belted at home, I was being bullied at school, you know, and just put my head down and thought, well, fuck this, the only way out of this is to do well at school. Yeah. And the police academy then, they were were offering... year 12, I think actually year 11 you could go in, but year 12, get paid to do your year 12 and then another 12 months of training. So I initially went in there with the idea, right, I'll get down there, I'll join the cops, I'll do my two years. Um, I might do another one or two years in uniform and and I'll go to uni or I'll get into the army or I'll do something. But mate, to be honest, as soon as I was out there, um, you know, walking the beat, I just fell in love with it.
0: Yeah, I come from a totally different walk of life, as you know. I was going to introduce myself as Robin Banks, and you're going to be Keith Banks, and um, today. But I was warned against it. Hey, uh, no, but we just come from different worlds. But knowing your story and doing a bit of research on your story, I'm amazed at the similarities in what we've encountered trauma-wise. Like yeah. through the work that you've done, and it's like, and and you know, obviously, what I've been through, and you know, and, and I, I understand your purpose, mate. Getting out there, and wanting to do good, because. Today I work with survivors of institutional abuse, and I've got that same, you know, that same drive that you would have had as a 17-year-old kid wanting to do good. It's a pretty amazing feeling. And um, what was your intentions, and where did you wanted it, to, where did you want it to take you?
1: Well, once I realised that I loved what I was in, oh, look, I always wanted to be a different, bit different Russell. I wanted, never wanted to be that big. Well, I couldn't be big, only about you know five foot eight. But I didn't want to be that thug. I didn't want to be that you know typical image of a cop that I'd seen, yeah. which is...
0: Because you know, yeah. your, your uncles and your grandfather had warned you about how coppers had bashed people and that.
1: Yeah, mate, in, in a small country town, I, rem- I remember them telling me at various times, you know, the local copper was a pisshead. And I think that was a lot of culture in in some of the small towns. A lot of the small towns, and I, I don't want to give anybody the impression that I'm bagging the police because it's quite the opposite, but there were, in those days, there were punishment areas. So... A lot of blokes had drinking problems a lot of them came back after world war ii um, in hindsight who'd seen service over there and and they came back with some major issues and and drowned it in alcohol like a lot of us do but they'd uh, if they stuffed up they'd be transferred to a small country town as punishment and i remember my uncles and my pop telling me about a local copper who was on the piss all the time and uh and he just flogged blokes when probably their back was turned you know or when they were when they were too pissed to defend themselves and they said to me variously, you know, that's not the sort of people coppers should be, and because I'd I'd still grown up with a respect for law and order, and you know that was influenced later, mate. Uh, God, we're living in Cairns, and I remember the cops turned up for a domestic call. Um, my stepfather was having a crack at my mum, and these two cops turned up, and they and I remember being 11 or 12 and being really um, influenced by the way that they handled it. You know, they, they calmed everything down. They had took him aside and had a chat to him, and I remember thinking, "Geez, they've actually made a difference to my day. Wouldn't that be cool to do that for other people?" Mm. Um, so it's all these separate influences, Russ. That I, it's I a can't good influence
0: mind. from your from your uncles and your grandfather. That's that mate. They put that put you in good stead to to, to be a good cop that everyone would respect.
1: Yeah, they were good role models, mate. They were fair you know you know what blokes are like in the bush, mate.
0: Yeah, they yeah. were sort of the earth type people, yeah.
1: Sold of the earth, tough but compassionate, give you the shirt off their back, sort of blokes. Yeah. Always a lot of soft spot always a soft spot for country people.
0: Yeah, same. I, I definitely do. I've always had I've always been able to relate to country people because of their genuineness and their authenticity and there's just something mm. beautiful about those sort of people. Hello yeah. to all the country people out there struggling.
1: Yeah. Spot on. So
0: yeah. you, you joined the police, you're on the beat. Tell us a bit about that. You're up Fortitude Valley or something like that, is that correct?
1: Oh, I was walking I was walking the beat in the city. Yeah. Um, a few years later, I spent some time in the valley, particularly when I was undercover. I was down the valley buying smack and buying all sorts of stuff. Mate, walking the beat, 19 years old, baby-faced little bloke, you know, fresh from the country. I think it was actually... <laughs> I'd only had sex with one girl um, because before I went to the beat, I went to a domestic disturbance and had a shoddy point in my face and I thought I was going to die and that's the first thought I had.
0: Yeah, I never got away, <laughs> in it. never got one out. I only
1: had one cheek, and I'm going to get killed. <laughs> um, <laughs> mm. but no, I was walking the beat, mate. I, um, you are guaranteed of a brawl in Brisbane probably from Wednesday through to Saturday nights and because um, the rest of the place, the city was asleep, big country town. So, you know, it taught me a lot. It taught me a lot about talking to people. It taught me because I didn't drink in those days. You know, I trained a lot. Um, I was only a skinny little kid. I was probably 72. Yeah, what kid, sort, of,
0: what sort of training were you doing?
1: Mate, it started martial arts in the academy. So I started karate in the academy. Mm. Um, and then I started trying, training in taekwondo.
0: Yeah. and you're, you're, You've got a black belt. Is that correct these days?
1: Yeah, mate. I've got two second Dan black belts here, both in different styles. Because mm. um, I, I stopped training for a long time and I went back when I was in my early 50s. Yeah, wow. So uh, just, it's good for my
0: head, mate. Yeah, same. I get that. So you're walking a beat. At that stage, look, I, you know, it'd become out pretty well known in the Fitzgerald Commission, uh, Royal Commission that there was a lot of corruption up there. Did you see much of that?
1: Not as a young kid, mate. Later I did, sure. Mm. Um but not as a young bloke, you know, we were really dealing with street offences um, because it was still an offence in those days to use obscene language in a public place and urinate in a public place and yeah. the old disorderly conduct, drunken disorderly, that sort of stuff. But it was it was also, it really taught me the benefit of, of talking to people because walking a particular area in the centre of the city, you got to know all the storekeepers, the owners of the bars, the clubs, the um, particularly, you know, the young girls who <laughs> Comes back to girls, doesn't it? Yeah. The young girls who worked as usherettes in the movie theatres, you know. So you actually talk to people and you got to know them. Hmm. And not that I was any great investigator at that stage at all, but I just thought, wow, what a, what a, an important part of being a cop is to actually talk to people and show them a human face. And and I'd often have the feedback even in those days. Geez, you don't act like a copper. Biggest compliment I
0: could ever have. Right, well, I reckon it would be.
1: Yeah, so I've <laughs>
0: given a cop, I've given certain cops that. There's a guy on a Gold Coast called Bill Lifko. I'll give him that compliment all day. Firm, yeah, fair, cool. not load ya up, not trying to verbal ya. Man, I'm gonna yeah. respect that. Got your fair and square. I'll cop that. Respect. Yeah, mate, and,
1: and you know what, mate? <clears throat> That's what I found in, as a young detective in the breakers, the break and editor squad. We're probably jumping around a bit, mm. but you know I'm very comfortable having a chat to you, mate, because you know mm. I know you get it, and I'm sure the people listening to you get it as well. Back in the day, I was only I'd, I'd bloody gone into the break and squad. I think I might have been 24 or 25, mm. and how it was how long you? Oh,
0: so you'd been in the force about five years by this time,
1: yeah? I uh, got sworn in at 19, so yeah, five or six years. And mm. um, this is after undercover and all that sort of stuff. But I remember I, my mate and I, my offsider and I pinched a, a tank man, a safe cracker. And he was an older bloke. He was probably then even, geez, in those days, his mid 40s.
0: In those days, those guys that done that were at the top of the criminal chain, weren't they?
1: Oh, they were good safe crackers, Yeah, yeah. you bet. Um, because they never, they were never violent. They do their job. They knew their trade. You know, they'd. Um, and you could almost say gentlemen crooks. Mm. But they were at the top of the chain because they, they were professional, as coppers say, they were good crooks. Mm. It was long before the bloody violence that drug trade brought with it and all that yeah. shit. But um, I remember sitting there interviewing this, and the old interview in those days was the typewriter yeah. and the six carbon papers. And
0: did you did stuff. you get out of two finger typing? Did what what sort of what did you graduate? Did you could you use your fingers?
1: No, mate. No, that was one of the skills the police academy actually taught us that was useful was uh, touch typing. Wow. So I could uh, I could touch type. Yeah, yeah, and I still can. Um, and I remember typing away, and this bloke, he looked at me and said, well, Mr Banks, like he's bloody twice my age, he says, Mr Banks, um, so what have you got on me today? And I thought, Mr Banks, Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, look, mate, we've got your fingerprints and this one and this one. He goes, yep, nice, no worries. Yeah, I'll nod to that, no worries. Mm-hmm. He said, there's other ones you haven't got me on, but, you know, keep going. There, <laughs> good, and it was just it was just like a nice, cool conversation, you know yeah, what yeah. I mean? And, and I think he ended up getting five or six... So he's had a few. He had a few. I got five or six. Was probably two or three on the bottom or something.
0: Yeah. What Keith is explaining, he got a a top sentence of five or six years in the top with a non-parole period of three years, which means he would have had to serve about three years if granted parole.
1: There you go. There you go, <laughs> mm. <laughs> Mate, We should swap. We should swap
0: places. <laughs> And just, let's, let's go back. So, when did you graduate the detectives? How long into the job did you, did you sort of... Um,
1: well, mate, I, I, um, I did three years in general patrol and in uniform, including walking the beat. Hmm. Um, was undercover for a couple of years. So, I, gee, I think I went to the... Let me get this right. Went as a, a trainee detective, um, probably 83.
0: Hmm.
1: Might have been 84. I wanted to do other stuff. First, first off
0: prior to the detectives would you, had you become an undercover was that right was the stepping stone from uh, uniform into undercover
1: yeah well undercover we I just volunteered for it yeah. so undercover so if we go back a bit there I'd realized there were undercover coppers and um, and I I wanted again with the whole super cop attitude you know that the naivety yeah. of youth yeah um, I wanted to do something that was very special and I thought being an undercover cop could actually do something about the heroin trade. Um, I'd never used drugs, never had a joint, didn't smoke a cigarette, never had a beer. And around that time, and you'd be too young to remember it, mate, but you, you might have read about it. There were massive amounts of smack or heroin coming into the country through yeah.
0: the, the Mr Asia syndicate, was it?
1: Yeah, the Mr Asia syndicate. Yeah, Terence John Clark. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, and people were dying of ODs literally every day in Britain. Fuck, there'd be ODs shitloads of ods all the time and i could see what you know the crime rate was increasing because lokes who are addicted or women who are addicted need money for smack and it and it was pretty expensive in those days you know mm. so you might have like a street gram might have been oh jesus 250 300 bucks yeah it's plenty. the it's quite price quite on it, that never yeah.
0: changed you know not yeah. much never much that's what it was when i was using heroin yeah but take that in mind keith Around about that day, $300 was the uh, average working wage for a bloke working in a factory, $300 a week.
1: That's what I was about to say, mate. So the value of money was different then compared to to when you were scoring, I'm I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah, sure. So so it was was bloody expensive and there was a lot of money in it, obviously. So I volunteered for undercover as I thought that's something to do. And and when I got in there, I realised that (laughs) there was no training at all, no training course at all. And you and I have chatted before where you and your mates thought that undercovers had graduated from NIDA.
0: Yeah, acting school. We, we always, in jail you go, oh yeah, they go to acting school, you won't pick them, you know, they're, they're <laughs> fully trained, they've got psychiatrists and psychologists and Mel Gibson comes in and tra- does special training with them and gives them awards and stuff like that. We heard all this bullshit, you know what I mean.
1: Yeah, I do, yeah. mate, I do. Well, and and in fact, it was completely the opposite. Back in my day, there was no training. I hung around with another UC for a a few buys and sort of sussed out what he was doing, had a couple of mates give me advice, and then I just was out there by myself. So the first few buys I made, people were on me because I was just fucking polite. Mm. (laughs) I was nice. I didn't barter the price, you know, all all of that, all those mistakes. And, uh, And somehow I got through it. And then I just, grabbed, you know, very quickly learned my trade. And, I, and a mate of mine used to say that being an undercover was like night or acting school, but it was on steroids. Yeah. And, and our joke was, you know, if an actor got a bad review, he'd get a, he'd get a um, his feelings to be hurt. If we got a bad review, we might get our legs broken or worse. But the other part, mate, was, you know, if you think about it, two years in the academy, getting socialised and screamed at, and it, it was just like the military academy, the short haircuts and the marching and the drill and the study and... All that stuff. Well, about three years on the road, you know, with uh, again uniform and discipline. And undercover, there was none of any of that. You know, mm. we could look how we wanted to. There was no rostered shift. You just just lived your life. And uh, so, when
0: you're when you're, when you're doing these the, doing the these deals, were you armed up? Most of the time, yeah. Well, it's
1: it's the old mate. There's a great song, and, and unfortunately copyright bullshit prevents us from using it anywhere in writing or whatever, but there's a great song by Glenn Fry who was with the Eagles yeah. called Smuggler's Blues. It's a top song. Yeah. And we used to play it back in the day. Yeah. And the line is something like, um, you've got to carry weapons because you always carry cash. Yeah. And doing, doing buys, there was a risk that, you know, your, your cover might be blown, but there was a bigger risk that you'd get ripped off.
0: Yeah, yeah. That that was more scary. How do you explain that to your superiors, you know?
1: Well, yeah, and also you might bloody, you know, get one in the brain pan um, if someone's, you know, mad enough and just fucking drill you for your money. So we're always armed,
0: yeah. So you're relying on their greed, right, to do the deal. So, you know what I mean? So if the deal you're putting to them's really enticing, you basically got them out.
1: Oh, mate, the cash, the folding, yeah, Yeah. all the time. It was that little trick,
0: she showed them your cash and...
1: Yeah, shit, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, you know, look, I think you're a fucking narc, I'm not going to sell you. Well, no worries, mate, you won't, you won't be needing this. Mm. And you pull out a roll of uh, of notes and suddenly you can see the the mind changes and the eyes light up and go, "Well, hang on, I was just being a bit hasty. I was only kidding, mm. you know. Um, Were you ever
0: surprised at their greed?
1: Yeah, I was, yeah. Greed tends to override survival, I found.
0: Yeah, and common sense.
1: Even if, even if their gut was saying there's fucking not something right about this bloke. As soon as the cash came out, attitude changed.
0: Yeah, it was like a magic wand.
1: Yeah, yeah, and uh, and so hence, mate, that's where you're always. I was always on my guard because, it, and we very, very often worked alone. Occasionally, I did jobs with with another bloke, but often worked alone with no backup. So you'd be walking into somewhere thinking, it, and it'd be the same. It'd be the same in the world you used to inhabit. I reckon. Mm. You know, you don't trust too many people,
0: do you? No, you can't. You can't tell them nothing. You can't tell them what you're doing, where you've been. It's yep. funny. I was talking yep. to Mick Gatto the other day, and he was talking about uh, the monster Graham Kinneburo. And Graham Kinneburo yep. was the type of guy if he seen someone and Mick would say, have "You seen old mate?" And he go, "No, I haven't seen him." And he was with him for two minutes before talking to him. He said he just lived that life. And I guess as an undercover, yeah. you would have had to resume, like assume that sort of sort of life yourself.
1: Well, you have to mate you're always hypervigilant. and that's that's probably why I relate to a lot of dealers and and a lot of uh, a lot of guys on the other side of the fence as well in relation to the trauma and the effect. Hypervigilance, don't know who you can trust. I certainly didn't trust too many coppers. And having said that, the vast majority of men and women I worked with in my career were straight, good, honest people. Mm. But when you're in the undercover world, the ones you're dealing with aren't mm. why. So I didn't trust too many coppers. I, I trusted my mates. Did you ever get ones, a feeling was, of
0: any cop at all that he was trying to sniff you out for on behalf of a deal or anything like that? you ever encounter any of that?
1: Um, mate, I, I was doing a job over the border in New South Wales. Um, I was legally entitled to be there, mm-hmm. but I, you know, I went over the border for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And I got a flogging uh, by two New South Wales detectives. Um, initially, they were going to – I don't know what they were going to do. They, they came across me and I was looking you – know, When you
0: say flogging, area, they actually bashed you?
1: Oh, they gave me flogging, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because I had in the boot of the car, I had a, I had a 357, um, I had probably oh, all up maybe an ounce and a half a smack mm. at um, some uh, Buddhist sticks exhibits, that yeah. I was waiting to put my controller to hand them all over, and these blokes just happened upon me and got me out of the car and started to question me and wanted to look in the boot, and I thought, yeah, i better declare myself now because it might go bad, particularly with a gun, and I said, yeah, look, I'm an undercover in the drug squad, and the first thing this bloke said was, who are you working on? What the fuck are you doing here? And I went, well, you know, you can't, I can't tell you that, mate, with a smile and whack, it was on. So they they both into me giving me a hiding to get me to tell them what I was working on. And I would suspect very strongly it was because they were involved in some uh, some illegal activity over there and they wanted to know what was happening. Yeah. Uh, and as that, as that was going on... Um, you know, my contact was on his way, and I just said, "Well, if you fuckers wait here for five minutes, we'll be able to." You know, he'll be ta- he'll be able to tell you what we're doing. And with that, they looked at each other and bolted.
0: Wow, that's hairy.
1: Got some revenge a few years later, but that's uh, that's another story.
0: And what about the anxiety of all this? How how were you like? I mean, I could only imagine, like, because you know, if it goes wrong, it could, could cost you your life. How were you dealing with that, like the mental anguish that goes alongside? Doing that sort of work, what was the cap- your coping mechanisms like?
1: It's it's bloody funny, you know. When you're a kid, it's the old ten foot doll and bulletproof, isn't it? Yeah. And, and even though, it, yeah, it was scary shit. Yeah, there was anxiety, but the rush was unbelievable. I had a mate who um, who developed a habit and later on went to do stick-ups, a uh, copper.
0: Was that – remember that copper reed that was going on, ex-copper? Remember Reed? Uh,
1: that was um, – are you talking about Colin Creed? Creed, Creed,
0: Colin Creed? Creed, yeah.
1: Yeah, he was uh, – Colin Creed, he was in South Australia. Yeah. Yeah, he was He was. He was working as a detective during the evening and doing stick-ups during the day. Wow. <laughs> wow. Mm-hmm. You know, my mate Harry's told me when he was doing stick-ups, he did, always did them alone. Yeah. Oh, initially – alone he said the rush was amazing and it was just the same as undercover mate yeah you, you know you, it's one of those things that you you're scared to death you can't show it but the adrenaline hits massive you know the adrenaline dumps massive and um and you just look forward to the next one but what i used to do was just was i couldn't train because the people i trained with i told them i'd been kicked out of the police force mm. um, they all thought i was a disgraced cop but i'd go along and train in in a martial arts dojo when i could um, I'd run a fair bit. The rest of the time, I'd pull cones.
0: <laughs> so by this stage, you were, you, you, were smoking, you were actually indulging in using drugs, yeah, yourself? Because mm. I've heard stories. I've I've been in jail with drug dealers, and they, and they've said, "Oh, he had a shot with me." So I didn't think he was an undercover cop. He's he's actually used heroin in front of me, or used ice, or whatever. Yeah. Would that be Would that be a fair assessment that some would go that far?
1: Well, my mate, the mate who developed a habit did, yeah. yeah. He started using on a job in Cairns and um, addictive personality and, and he, he, had a, he had a bad habit um, and he uh, he left the police force and started doing armed robs because he put all his payout money up his arm. It was tragic. Um, when you
0: say payout money, is that the money for the buy, to buy...
1: No, he, he was paid out, medically unfit, okay. very quietly and under the table, if you're not I mean. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, to get rid of him because he was a, he would have been an embarrassing problem, even though I'm very bloody sure the smack he was being provided with for almost two years was by detectives. Yeah. Because it, it suited their purposes to have someone who could uh, have a hit and, you know, get into certain areas like you're talking about. Yeah. For me, mine was weed. Um, I smoked a hell of a lot of weed.
0: And what, what? how did that happen? Like, At what point do you think, here's a bloke, you're a clean living bloke, Non drinker, non smoker, and all of a sudden you got a bong in your hand. How did that eventuate, and what was the catalyst of it,
1: mate? It's that's a great question, buddy. It, and it's going to sound like a wanky answer, but because I was so dedicated to fighting the evil drug trade as I saw it in those days, I was prepared to let my health conscious approach go down, go go by the wayside. <laughs> yeah, I was prepared to to drink if I needed to. I was prepared to smoke weed if I needed to. And, um, and I think I started, oh, I had a couple of bongs with someone I was talking about buying a pound from. Um, and initially it didn't affect me because the THC component of, of cannabis needs to be in your blood fats for the rest to interact with, which gives you the stone. Is that
0: what happened to me? I, 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 I When I first tried pot, it never worked for a month. Mm. Yeah, I was the same. Yeah. <laughs>
1: And then I got stoned on stoned one afternoon, and I uh, I had to ring a mate to go. I'm in a phone box.
0: I'm <laughs> I'm, I'm starving. <laughs> and I'm starving.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and I remember I bought, I bought a, big, uh, a carton of milk and a caramello chocolate on the way home. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and but you know, and, and I still, it's funny, mate, how you rationalise things because for probably oh, six months or so, I reckon, I thought right, I. I'll smoke weed when I'm working.
0: (laughs) Did did the pot itself help calm your nerves?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: From a dealer's uh, point of view, seeing you turned up fucking clubbed would have authenticated you.
1: Yeah, it did. Well, particularly when I got good at it, mate. So, you know, I'd I'd pull cones and I actually had one dealer go, fuck, you too good for me.
0: (laughs) And what, on a cone-off? Yeah. To have a cone-off with him, a drag race or... (laughs)
1: We used to have cone-offs between ourselves yeah. because it, it was – because the undercovers, we were the only ones that understood each other. Yeah. So once we all got over the, you know, can we trust each other bullshit, then we get clubbed together yeah. because if, if you can smoke and relax with your mates rather than – think about this, mate. You have three or four cones. You're operating under a different name. You've got to remember what your name is, oh. what your backstory is, And don't stuff up. That's tricky.
0: Yeah. I get that. But if you're hanging around with your mates,
1: you can just let your guard down and listen to Pink Floyd and talk shit.
0: But in that back in the, the pot smoking days, let's I just want to talk. JB Ocupedinson had some pretty harsh laws. I think you would get life for pot or twenty five years or something. Couldn't you?
1: He introduced mandatory life for two grams of smack. Wow. If you were growing, I think growing might have been a twenty year minimum. Um, oh yeah, just draconian bullshit. <laughs> and and what it did was it made blokes more desperate. You know, because you imagine if you got two grams of smack, and the cop kick kicking your door. Well, you're going to going to jail for life anyway. You might as well have a crack and see if you can shoot your way out. And that it all started that it just turned the whole thing around, you know. And it was typical, this is what I rail against these days, typical of laws being made by politicians who had no world experience. Yeah. Being advised by, by blokes, not like us, mm-hmm. but being advised by people who've Left school, gone to work for the political party, and suddenly they're in a position to advise, and they've got no idea what they're doing. But mate, it was it was worse than that, mate. He had the special branch police go to Queensland Uni and tear condoms off walls because it would have promoted premarital sex. He um, he banned a perfume called Opium because it was called Opium. You know, just, yeah.
0: Just, a he was another. He was a laughing stock. He was the laughing stock. They I, I used to put him on comedy channels overseas.
1: Do you, oh, yeah. you, you don't
0: worry about that, you, 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 you. But, you know,
1: interestingly, mate, Yeah. we spoke to him because I, I did meet him a few years before the Fitzgerald inquiry for a job in a tactical sense, and he spoke just like we do.
0: Yeah, none of that silly. All bullshit.
1: All bullshit. Yeah,
0: do you reckon that was a bung on that, 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 that thing, yeah. that voice you put on?
1: Yeah, absolutely, yeah.
0: And I think yeah. he I think he got away lightly at that Royal Commission, I think.
1: Oh, oh. yeah, so do I, mate. A lot of people did, mate. Yeah. A lot
0: people did. So six months into smoking the pot, you know, what was going on for you? Did you was did you realise that there was a problem?
1: Um, mate, yeah, I, I liked it a lot. And and what I realised was it changed my attitude. I had an attitude before I started undercover work that anybody who smoked a joint was a crook.
0: Mm. That's
1: the way I was socialized. So about six months in, when we'd all get together and we'd, you know, pull cones and just chill and laugh and just relax as young blokes, I realised that I'd been on the wrong side of thinking all those years, and it changed my entire attitude towards drug enforcement. Because you know now I'm, I'm a huge advocate for legalising cannabis, for decriminalising powders, etc. And and that was really the start of it because I thought, you know what? I'd much rather be doing this than having a beer and it's not hurting anybody and no one gets violent when they're stoned and all of those mm. all of those things. And at the same time, you know I was I was scoring substantial amounts of dope, so pounds and pounds off people that I quite liked. And and I was torn with that because in my view they weren't actually criminals even though they were breaking the law. Heroin was killing people, sure. But cannabis and here I was, you know, if I'd met you, we'd be talking, we'd be mates, we'd be laughing, we'd be having a beer, we'd be talking about whatever, and I'd be setting out with the intention of betraying you for something that I didn't believe in. Yeah. So that, that was that was the start of a whole mindset change.
0: Did you ever have someone like, I, I, I was actually just here before, I was in the studio before and one of the Batuta guys asked me about Vinso Dempsey, that's a big name in, in Queensland. Mm, yeah. And he was like yeah. well, he was one of the biggest producers of pot in Queensland at the time. I think.
1: Yeah, he was. Uh, he was a man who was involved in a lot, as you mm. know. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and it still gives me chills to hear his name, mate. We, he, um,
0: did you ever? Do you ever have him in your sights for anything like that?
1: No, I didn't. Mm. But a, a very very good friend of mine did.
0: Yeah.
1: Larry, who I've I've written about in both books.
0: Yeah, Vince O'Dempsey recently got pinched on a 45, 43 year forty-three-year-old cold case murder, the Whiskey Go murder, and they suspect that he's killed as many people as Ivan Milat.
1: Yeah, that's right. Probably more. Mm. Um, Barbara McCulkin and her daughter's uh, murder, he and Shorty Dubois um, were convicted of, and it was a bloody good cold case investigation.
0: Yeah. But they'd been pulled into a lot of coroner's things. They'd been cleared of that a few times, hadn't they?
1: Uh, Rather no case to answer, rather than be cleared. Mm. Um, DNA didn't exist, the technology didn't exist, all of that stuff, and... And I and I've got to say, mate. Back in the '70s, the investigative ability of some detectives wasn't flash. Yeah, there is, you know, a very strong um, version that Vince o. Dempsey was actually aligned with a detective called Tony Murphy. Mm-hmm. Murphy died years ago. He was um, he was never named in the Fitzgerald inquiry, the Royal Commission, and I I think he was named on the periphery. <clears throat> but there was substantial evidence that he was he was the worst of the lot you know of course family denies all of that
0: but I look at someone like Vinso Dempsey I know a bit of, I've done jail with Vinso Dempsey he's the most clean living bloke I've ever met in my life
1: yeah
0: vegetarian yeah. don't drink yeah. don't smoke Man, what do you? How do you get? How does? How does someone arrest someone like that? That, that like because everyone's got a vice, whether it's women, drugs, or gambling. That's the the common denominator in crimson. that's what you got to. I, 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 would it be fair to say, as a cop, that's what you look for? They're chinking their armour in one of those vices.
1: Yeah, yeah. You look for any any sort of weakness that you can manipulate your way in for sure. And and that's even just sitting in an interview room and having a chat. If you know someone's background, you'll you'll put the conversation around to that, and and. Um, and probably engender some sort of relationship, I suppose, is the mm. best way. But O'Dempsey, I can almost guarantee you, mate, when you were doing time with him, he would have told you bugger all.
0: Mm. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, you don't know. That bloke's just an enigma. He, I can just feel you in on something. He, he used to knew, know you guys were following him, right? And he used yeah. to go for these walks, and, he, and he's a really good bushman. Mm. And he reckons he'd go into the bush and just go for a walk for 100 kilometres in the bush and the bewilder's
1: yeah yeah that'd be right he he was he was one of those blokes that just was completely aware of everything mm. and and I wouldn't call him a good crook because you know his his crimes are bloody horrible mm. those two little girls were sexually assaulted before they were murdered for a start and they were eleven and nine yeah and it, when you say vegetarian non-drinker et cetera I immediately thought of uh, Russell Cox
0: yeah great crime. Great career. Yeah, I've
1: got a lot of respect for Russell. I'd like to meet him at some point. I spoke to I, him
0: recently. i would be one of the only people, mostly in Australia, that have spoke to him recently. Wow. And he's another one. Like, he is just loves, he'll never get, Russell Cox is just one of those blokes that went through that phase. He'll never get in trouble again. No. Clean living. Yep. He'd be hard, that's why he was so hard to catch, wouldn't he? He'd just have it in no vices.
1: Oh man, he was uh, yeah, he was professional. You know, he had the false IDs. He was a makeup expert. He was a bloody good fire, good marksman, and uh, and um, knew his trade excellently. And and I think he was smarter than most, in as much as he looked at his risks and he assessed his risks and put them against a return. Yeah, you know, so he wouldn't he wouldn't do stupid jobs. Yeah, and he had a sense. No, I've written in my second book about coming across Russell. Mm. Um.
0: Did you come across him? Did you meet him?
1: Yeah, no, no. We were in the same area. He was going to do a stick up on um, on the the main railway yards um, payroll. Yeah, and uh, that's the time he got the drop on two detectives and stole their guns and locked their locked their car and uh, and bolted in Brisbane. We were the tactical team that was set to take him out, and so we missed each other by probably seven minutes. I oh, how
0: does that feel?
1: Yeah, the <laughs> well, one that he, got away. Was, one that got away, yeah. But mate, he just had a sixth sense, you know. He, he drove through this, and and there was no that the surveillance was bloody good. We were we were tucked away in a van with all our weaponry, with the teams ready to go, and he just had a sixth sense, mm. and you got to admire that.
0: Did you ever come across a crim called Les O'Connell who was just a Les O'Connell was a bank robber or something like that, and he was really good with law. Leslie O'Connell.
1: Mm. Yeah. Uh, yes, I did.
0: He was yeah. um. He was, law firms lined up to employ him when he got out of jail. He, he, he learned his trade as a jailhouse lawyer, and he was pretty good at yeah. it.
1: He got himself off a, uh, a murder charge.
0: Self-repping, didn't he? Yeah,
1: um, in Sydney. Connolly. Les, Les Connolly. Connolly.
0: Yeah, that's him. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, Mate, uh, I I took Les out at gunpoint on the in Redcliffe outside the eventide old folks' home when he was um, wanted for bailing up three coppers, stealing their guns. It was uh, a number of stick-ups that he'd done as well. And uh, and we were in a surveillance van, and uh, and I put my M16 at Les's head mm. and uh, put him on the ground, and we had a conversation. Yeah. Small world.
0: Yeah, I just <laughs> what I thought about that because I look, I I I always admired someone that could self rep in something like that, or just had. He was one of those guys in jail that everyone went to for legal advice. He was your second yeah. opinion guy. If your lawyer has given one opinion, the Les's opinion is one that they'd run with.
1: Yeah. Yeah, he, and he was, um, he was part of the Boggo Road Fun Run as well, the,
0: the escape. The seven, where they went they, out the front yeah. gate. The bloke I escaped yeah. from prison, Brett Langford was one of them too.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. He was
0: my, he's the bloke who I escaped from with and, and got pinched for Robin Banks. With, so, oh, right. Yeah, Brent, yeah. Houdini right. they called in. The
1: Houdini, yeah. yeah. Small one again.
0: So once again. <laughs> let's go back to, um, how did the, uh, the stint in the undercovers come to an end?
1: I just just had enough, mate, to be honest, and 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 I realised that you know, because I was going to be a lifelong copper, and it didn't end out that it ended up that way. And I thought, okay, I've been doing it for a couple of years. I time I went back and you know got back into uniform for a little while. And I wanted to be a detective and get promoted. And and undercover in those days was just there wasn't any benefit to your career. It was probably a bit the opposite. Um,
0: They're sort of rock starish now, aren't they?
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. It depends on the job. Yeah. The, Daniel Morecambe job where they got that pedophile. They were pretty good. Fantastic job. Mm. But in those days, mate, not so much. Um, And I saw mates of mine starting to get burned out. I saw that, you know, Harry had a heroin habit and things were just not like I thought they'd be.
0: Harry had a heroin habit. That's, there must be a a line in a song about that. Harry had a, (laughs) Harry was normally uh, terminology used for heroin. That's that's. Oh, yeah, yeah. is it? Yeah, Yeah, I got on the Harry, that means heroin. Harry had a right. heroin habit. I just thought about that. I'll have to tell that to one of my rapper friends.
1: Mate, either that or one uh, are your Slim Dusty cohorts?
0: Oh no, I've been unearthed. The undercover got me. <laughs> hey, um, so you come out of the you come out of the the undercovers straight by back to getting prepared to become a detective. Is that was your intentions, were yeah?
1: Yeah, it was, mate. I went back to uniform for five or six months for discipline, I suppose, which is what we all needed anyway because we're out of control. Um, to get back into that, you know, normal lifestyle. But no counselling, no re nothing. I, I remember I, I bought maybe a half an ounce of smack or something the day before, and literally the day before, and then the next morning I we went and got my hair all cut off and I had a uniform on and I was sitting in a police car thinking, wow.
0: And what, did the pot smaking continue or...? Yeah, it did, yeah. yep,
1: yep. You know, because it had become part of my lifestyle by then, I, I much preferred to have a joint than a um, than a beer. Yeah. Not, not to the extent that I was, you know, of course, but yeah, you know, rest
0: days. Yeah. I'd have um, a few cones and just chill and seems, I didn't it's, see it's, wrong with it. it is weird for me to hear a cop, like, you know, someone say that, that we're just so normal. You guys were just having a few cones on the weekend, and you know what I mean? Yeah, that's cool. And, and, and what, tell us, talk about when you um, sort of become a detective. How did that sort of opportunity to, to, uh, come to you?
1: Mate, I, I applied, um, and I had a fairly decent arrest record um, in General Patrol, you know, a lot of break and enters, a, uh, a lot of theft, stolen property, that sort of stuff, because back in the day, you'd be on patrol, you'd see something sus, and just pull a car over and have a chat to the blokes inside, and talk your way into going back to their place and get permission to go inside and search, and all that stuff. So, um, applied for it, I got uh, a couple of uh, blokes who vouched for me, who I'd done undercover jobs for, who were good straight coppers and went in as a, as a trainee a plain clothes i think the rank was plain clothes constable and after 3 years of you you've got a good arrest record you go to um, court you give evidence a lot you have a conviction rate etc and everyone says you know your bosses go yeah good operator then you become a designated detective so um, i went in as a plain clothes young cop into the railway squad and i worked in the break and enter squad uh, got tapped on the shoulder to go to the breakers,
0: and that's um, sort of a big step up, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it was. Yeah, but breakers was taught me a lot, mate. It was a good, good heavy squad. Um, when I say heavy squad, we, you know, we did our own door kicking and you know, dealt with some pretty good crooks, not not the shop stealers and that bullshit. Mm. But I was taught a lot. Um, I was taught how to interview. I was taught how to talk to people. Whereas there were other detectives that had just flogged people. You know, t- handcuffed in a chair and bash him. Mean, that was never, ever my style. It made me sick. Um, you know, I'd much rather sit down and have a conversation with someone. And that yielded more results to me, I reckon, than um, than any of the other techniques. Can I just ask, so, can I
0: just ask you one question? Because a lot of people say they've got arrest quotas. Did, is that true or false? You had
1: No, there wasn't a quota, but you, you were judged on how many pinches you made a month. Mm. You know, if you're a good, good, hardworking detective, you probably should get say, 10 criminal arrests a month, and that, that meant you've got a network of informers, you've got, um, you know, some good police work going on, your, your investigation skills are good. If you were a pisshead and you were just spending most of your shifts in the pub, which will look uh, fair for you blokes, <laughs> used to work, then, um, then you're good. Or McDonald's. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, Detectives was the pub. Um, <laughs> but also, having said that, though, you don't meet, you don't meet crooks in, uh, in bingo halls or churches. So, no. you know, you spend a bit of time in the
0: pub. I remember once when I, like, I later found out I'd become the tug of an undercover sting, right? And they got someone else instead. I want another bloke approached me and he said, you know, would you be interested in buying pills? And I said, mate, because I, I was dead set at work and I was, I was a fitness instructor at a Japanese jockey school. Wow, uh, that that's a that's a line of a song too. I think no, yeah, there's a of, beat me, just beat me to it. a line <laughs> of a song, mate. So and, and, and anyway, my mate heard the opportunity thrown at him, and he said, "I'll do it. I'll do it. <laughs> You're on your own." But they yes. were that, that bloke was a pretty. He was a well-known detective from Melbourne, just doing a weekend job, a, a week, a couple of weeks off in Sydney. I was like, "I'll just go for a holiday in Sydney and do a bit of undercover work." Hey Deacon. Yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> i just. Yeah, I just cool. It just amazes me the similarities in the crimson themselves and 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 the cop. And I spoke to Gary Jubilant about the same thing. The similarities: what you go through, the status, the state. Like yeah. in in uh, in New South Wales, you know, arm holdup squad coppers were rock stars. Breaker yeah. squads would would have been the same, wouldn't they?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah breakers the druggies the robbers yeah all, all those squads had their own status you're, you're spot on
0: and with the um, influx of sort of heroin in those times that would have been the influx of um bank robberies and that kicking off too wouldn't it
1: oh mate brisbane we were averaging probably two stick-ups a day in the i would say early to mid 80s yeah two stick ups a day for sure and you, you could. all in the old joke was you know friday afternoon you feel like a beer if you're rostered on don't get your hopes up because there's going to be a stick up about three o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah, bingo, it's a good time. That was my favourite time. <laughs> Thank <There> you. So <go. laughs> uh, we were all on the road waiting for blokes like you to go racing into banks. Yeah,
0: and I was out on the road trying to escape blokes you, like yous coming at us. I was normally in the boot of a car hiding. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, mate, and, and that's when that's when the violence started too. When when uh, blokes started shooting at us. Yeah. It Was uh, probably
0: eighties. How long was the role in the detectives before you sort of pro- progressed it it was like a trg wasn't it
1: yeah it was tactical yeah tactical response um oh look i got in there pretty quickly because that was one of the other things about undercover I, I do i do presentations to people now about mental health and ptsd and resilience and so on and i talk about the fact that undercover changed me a lot changed my lifestyle certainly changed my mindset but it also made me it made me an adrenaline junkie hmm. and it made me and it made me just change me i think into a better personality anyway because i was pretty bloody boring before that you know I'd, I'd go to a party and drink orange juice think about that
0: i still um, do that
1: yeah, yeah but i was 19 mate well, I'm um,
0: 54 i'm still <laughs> i love it i love being different
1: Yeah, <laughs> oh, mate so do i yeah but i wanted i want i needed that adrenaline hit yeah and i And and, uh, the tactical area was something I looked at and went, wow, because they they were really focused on domestic sieges then and, you know, high-risk stuff. It was about that time that counterterrorism was starting to be looked at seriously at a national level, so the feds were pumping money into it. So I I went into that, oh, Jesus, I might have only been 25 or something, and it was a part-time thing. So we trained four days a week. We were on call and so on, um, and then it became a full-time in 87
0: the training aspect like the physical training aspect of that would have really appealed to you yeah because there's yeah. a lot of physical yeah. like for those sorts of jobs
1: yeah absolutely right and i was training hard anyway because i always thought you know to be a copper you don't need to be or you shouldn't be a big fucking overweight unfit i used to yeah. love them guys you should be into it you know oh yeah exactly i used right. to love them
0: guys jump out of a you see one of them in a cop car i'll chance this one Come on, fat boy! chase me over a few fences. I dare you. Good luck. <laughs> but see, I was the other way, and, and
1: and it's just it's about you know learning your tool, or your trade, isn't it? It's about being fair and income about your trade.
0: But I'll tell you something so, now. Can I just tell you from a crims' point of view? A, a, a crim sees a fit-looking cop. He's not going to take a chance with him. You that know right. the risk of have I'm going to try turn it on punching on with him, or I'm going to turn uh, I'm going to try escaping on him. I'll tell you something, I tried escaping from Blacktown Police Station once, the bloke who changed me just won a gold medal at the police games for a triathlon, and I, (laughs) and he was giving, I'm running up the road, and he's giving me a commentary, going, come on, mate, you can go faster than that, and I he just fucked me mentally, you know, (laughs) that's gold, (laughs) he just fucked me, I was in everything, all of them, yeah, anyone that, mate, I could have, why couldn't I jag the fat fella that day, and. (laughs) <laughs> Life would have been fucking dandy. but um, And that's that thing, is like the coppers that could, like, you know, the, from a crims point of view, coppers that could fight, they'll have a go, and, you know, they're presented yep. well like that. You just go, off oh, I'm not fucking around here.
1: Well, I mean, it's it makes sense, doesn't it? it? The difference was a lot a lot of crims that I came across had been inside, and they'd they lifted, and they'd trained, and they came out fitter than they were when they went in. So, you know, for me it was a bit of survival as well because I thought, Jesus, I'm coming across these blokes and they're getting... Heavier and heavier, you know, firearms and, and and so on. If I didn't keep myself fit, then I was doing myself a disservice and
0: my mates. That's a daunting prospect, eh? Mm. Not, mm. You know, you you've got the opportunity to, to sort of match them. That's that's a choice.
1: Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Particularly when guns are involved, mate. You know, it's so. I'd never been in a gunfight until until 1987, um, and and we executed a, a warrant on a house um, for. Um, Paul Mullen, Paul James Mullen, who was uh, an, another escapee from Long Bay, and uh, stick up a lot of stick ups, but he was he was a violent, fucking piece of work. He'd um, he'd shoot people for the fun of it, you know. He terrorised people for the fun of it, not out of necessity, just for the fun of it. And uh, and we executed a warrant on, on a house he was in, and we had um, vests, bullet resistant vests that were only good for shotties or handguns, and he had a a mini fourteen. Um, two to three Ruger. And that'll Open
0: go through it, wouldn't it. A bullet, one of those, will go yeah. through a bulletproof.
1: Straight right through it. Um, he opened fire on us, and uh, and you know he killed or well, one of my guys died in the hospital. That
0: bloke was a good mate of yours, yeah?
1: It was a great mate of mine, yeah. And um, and the other guy, Steve, who was I was living with and was best mates with, he was shot and uh, almost died. And two of us, um, two of us, killed Mullen. But that really, that really changed my entire life. You know, you have. People say a defining day of your life. That was a defining day of my life.
0: I, I wanna know, what, what, what entered your body after that day? What entered your mind, your heart, your being?
1: Uh, mate, I was, I was grief-stricken. You know, Peter and I joined the tactical team together. I was grief-stricken, I was numb, you know, I was angry because the job had been interfered with as far as what we wanted to do was do it and just take out Mullen very quickly. Not kill him, but take him out and arrest him. And it was interfered with by some bosses. They changed the way we wanted to do things because that was the same week our corruption inquiry had started. Uh, police command were pretty sensitive about publicity because it wasn't looking good already. You know, the corruption was starting to be uncovered. And they changed our, our plan because they. I'm totally convinced they wanted to have a headline in the paper to take the attention away from the corruption inquiry. So they, they didn't let me use um, distraction grenades or tear gas, which I always would have done.
0: What was the rationale in that? It's
1: hard to say, mate, because they never consulted us. I can only make an assumption, and that is that they didn't want, they didn't want us to look too violent or overbearing because they were trying to manage the damage to the public perception because of the corruption inquiry. Mm. And what happened was it, it gave Mullen an opportunity to, to just start firing at us. Whereas if I'd used tear gas and, and flashbangs like I wanted to, he'd probably still be alive, you know, and so would Peter. Um, but it didn't, it, it all went to shit and he um, and he opened up on us and, and it was tragic. So for the next, oh mate, look, 30 years, I had survivor guilt, I had post-traumatic stress disorder um, and, and I had daily reminders of that morning and I went through the what I should have done, what I could have done, what I might have done. For years and years and years and years, and the other result was that I became the dark side of me took over my person. I became homicidal. So when I when I took Les Conley to the ground and put a um, an M16 in his head, and I'm not proud of this, but it's very important um, for me to keep telling the story because every time I do a little bit, it just gets a little bit better. He had bailed up I think three or four coppers and. And I was in this mindset where I wanted to take the opportunity to wreak revenge for my mate's death, or my mate's murder, basically. And and I um, put him down to the ground, put my M sixteen in his head, and I said, "I hope you fucking get out of jail again, mate, because next time we meet, I'm going to put one in your brain pan." And I knew, and I meant it. I, I was dark. Mm. And uh, then I was involved in another shooting not so long after that at a siege. Same deal, you know. This guy's inside the the, the house and. And i just turned to my mate and said i'm going to kill this prick and and i knew then that i was stepping right outside the bounds of being a good copper and doing my job as it should be done i was moving into adf veterans i talk to call it the want to versus the need to so there's a need to kill in warfare yep and they say that some blokes just get to the want to and that's where I was stepping into, and I, I realised it and thought, Jesus Christ, you know what's happening to me? And I, I knew something wasn't right, but there was no discussion about PTSD and those. Days. No one knew what it was. Mm. Um, so no, no counselling, no assistance. You certainly didn't tell your mates that you were struggling. But I, I remember um, coming home after that siege where this guy was shot, thinking, oof, I've got to do something about this."
0: Were you married and had kids, or had you had a start? No,
1: no, I was living with a living with a woman. Uh, this is my fiance, who later I later married her, and and I left the marriage a couple of years later because I was just in such a bad. I didn't know what the hell I was doing, but yeah, I, we were living we were living together. Um, but she could see it as well, you know. Not long after Pete's Pete's um, murder, I was sitting at home, um, as my mate and I were told there were a contract on our heads from a certain bunch of blokes in Sydney, who were Mullins' mates. Um, so I was carrying my weapon off duty for a couple of years and, uh, and I was sitting at home, I don't know, I can't remember how long maybe six weeks, eight weeks after Pete died and I put the gun in my mouth and thought about just squeezing the trigger and the only reason I didn't was I had a, a memory of a suicide I'd gone to where a guy killed himself with a three oh three rifle and just taken the whole back of his head off and there was brain spatter and everything everywhere and I remember thinking if I squeeze this trigger she's going to come home and find that and I was worried about her trauma and not fear of death, it's bizarre. And then I realized what I was doing and, and woke up the next morning, put all, stripped the gun and hit around the house. Yeah. I woke up the next morning and thought I'm in trouble here, but I had no idea what to do about it.
0: It's just amazing that you were going through all of that and it and it just slipped through the gaps of the of the department that was you're Employing you, it's, it's amazing. I reckon these days they'd pick up on that.
1: Oh, mate, I reckon so. But you got to remember, brother. I'd been a fucking undercover cop for two years. True. I knew exactly how to disguise everything. Yeah, crazy. You know, and, and I had this whole disguise, this whole facade that everything was fine. Were, um,
0: were you Were you drinking at this stage? Were you Yeah. Yeah, yeah every night. And yeah, you're using the drink to sort of as a coping mechanism, a, 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 to numb.
1: Yeah, to numb it. Yeah, precisely to numb to numb the pain, the emotional pain, and to be able to sleep. Not that I slept well, but, you know, I'd, I would drink for effect. So it's it's bizarre. You know, you go to work, I'd run 5Ks, um, go to the range, do whatever we did, do jobs, because I was full-time tactical, do jobs, do whatever we had to do, um, come home and drink most nights.
0: Similar, it's, it's just exactly the same, isn't it? Like veterans coming home from the war... Abuse, yeah. abuse survivors did the same thing. I'd done the same thing. I just used drugs, copious amounts of drugs, to numb that yeah. void that had developed yeah. as part of my trauma. And that's that's where I relate to everything you're saying. I just, man, you and I have walked the same path, just in yeah. you know, just in different coloured clothes. Well, we have,
1: mate, and that's then that's like you know, a lot of the, a lot of the um, advocacy I do in the conversations I have now about trauma, I make exactly that point. Mm. You know, we all have trauma. In varying degrees, but when those of us who have have trauma like you and I have had, that's what we do. Mm. We isolate, we numb. You know, we we think we're the only ones going through it, the only ones that have been in this world. All of that stuff, and and we, you know, thankfully some of us can get the hell out of it again. Mm. You know, like you and I have done. But I just fear my heart goes out to people out there. You know, just say childhood abuse. You know that kids like. Like me, who grew up in in shit environments, who don't have the ability to escape from it.
0: You're an abuse survivor, though. As far as that goes, what you witness as a kid that domestic yeah. violence makes yeah. you an abuse, a childhood abuse survivor.
1: I, I, I realise that now, mate. You know, I never would have thought about that until probably, like I say, three or four years ago. Um, I just thought, oh well, been through a bad thing and got out of it or mm. escaped. But you're right; it's surviving the that that that's trauma. You know.
0: And and you're the same. I I, I, I put a post up about the last bank I robbed on TikTok and I was saying about two blokes apprehended me and and the post was about thanking them because they saved my life, you know. And I talked about, you know, the trauma I caused, the tellers in the bank. And these blokes go, oh, well, I was abused and and I didn't didn't use drugs and I didn't do stick-ups. And I said, yeah, well, I like the colour black, you like the colour blue. It makes it, we're different people handle trauma differently and this narrow-minded approach to well i didn't do this and i didn't do that and i didn't what you do that's not a one shoe fits all type thing with trauma is it
1: no it's not mate no exactly right you know we're all human beings are all different and you know what i say to blokes who say that to you lucky bastards yeah Uh, because you know you don't want the degree of you don't want the impacts of trauma like you and i've had yeah So. You know, I I think people misappropriate, some people misappropriate the term PTSD because now it's fucking trendy. Yeah, yeah. Um, And and I say to to people I talk to about this, trust me, you don't want it. Yeah. You do not want the disorder because it's bloody terrible. But the power of this, the power of these conversations is that, you know, I'm in my 60s. We would never have had these conversations. I mean, we as men would Mm. never have had these conversations like this 30 years ago. Maybe even 20 years ago yeah. it would have been the openness, you know, that we have. And
0: It's a, 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 it's a beautiful platform to be able to do it in and, 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 yeah. and just and demonstrate that trauma is trauma, right?
1: Yeah, and recovery is possible, mate. Yeah, yeah. Recovery is absolutely possible.
0: Do you ever and do any 12-step programs, Keith? Because you, there's a few analogies, a few sayings you say that resonate with me that through, I've learned through my 12-step um, experience.
1: No, no, I haven't, mate. Um, I, I've known people who have. Mm. Um, and I guess, I, you know, I just pick things up because I read widely about resilience and, and recovery and trauma. Oh. And, um, and look, I, I did go through one of the, I don't know which step it is, but it's making amends. Yeah, step um, four, yeah. It's when I, when I, left, I, right. I left the cops. I was, I was broken yeah. and I went into, into corporate. Yeah. yeah. I would have been a nightmare man. Yeah. <laughs> I would Nightmare. I just had that anger and that rebelliousness and that resistance and all of that stuff. And I tracked down an old manager of mine, God, five or six years ago now, and I bought him a coffee. I said, mate, I just want to apologise, you know. I I just would have been. Mm. And he said, well, he said, I knew you were going through some stuff, but I never really understood it. And I went, yeah, well, this is what it was all about. And and for me, that's important because I've apologised to my kids for my... um, emotional numbness and my my all of my stuff that they saw growing up you know the drinking holy fuck even out of the cops i was drinking way too much and and i look back on that now and i thought that was normal i thought it was normal to to come home and get shit face so you could go to sleep
0: that's funny how we normalize things there would have been so many things in your police forcing work that you would have normalized you know
1: oh mate the black humor for sure. You know, that there's there's a lot of people who hate cops, and I get that. Um, the trouble is, they judge all on the actions of a few. Mm. But what they don't understand is the things that cops see and do. Mm. You know, the, the dead infants, the, the sexually abused kids, the the, the the road accident trauma. Women that's all had the
0: shit punched out of her uh, by some fucking coward.
1: By some coward, yeah. Someone who's been flogged by four blokes you'd love to get your hands on. Mm. And when you do get your hands on them,
0: they're cowards.
1: That's right, and if you do overstep it and you give them a little bit back of what they've given, then all of a sudden you're the bad guy. Yeah, yeah, I get so it. So it's bloody, it's it's a tough gig, particularly these days. It's it's harder and harder, I reckon. Yeah. And cops go and, and they normalise a lot of their behaviour. And there's um there's a there's a great book written by an American guy about um, um police and and then the trauma of surviving law enforcement. It's called, mm. and it talks about the facts that cops are always hypervigilant. And mate, I still go to a cafe. I will still sit with my back against the door. That's door. trauma. It's trauma. I want to see what's going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and you may, be, you may well be the same. 100%. And it's so we're in that hypervigilant state. And when you stay in hypervigilance too long, that's when you suffer disorder and trauma, yeah. traumatic PTSD. And, and a lot of uh, cops, not so much fire we take the piss out of the fire fairies because they can sleep on
0: night. They got all the firefighters out there. That's his opinion, <laughs> not mine. No. Yeah. But yeah,
1: it's all it's all about trauma. And this is a conversation we could have all for day. So interesting. There's an
0: amazing guy that we've interviewed here called Joey Williams. He's got a program called The Enemy Women's about childhood trauma. He's an indigenous guy, amazing guy. Anyone out there, give him a follow on Instagram. He's amazing. Mate, let's talk about. This the next siege, a major siege, you got a bravery award for disarming a bloke strapped with uh, explosives, yeah?
1: Yeah, yeah, the MLC building in 93, I think it was, 93. So I was, uh, and it's one of those things about police work, mate, you never know what's going to happen. And I I was out um, running an undercover operation, so I met my undercover guy, took the exhibits, did the running sheet, all that stuff. And, uh, and I was driving back in through the city with my um, work partner, and there was a shots fired call to the MLC building, any unit in the vicinity of the MLC building. And, you know, so we raced in there to um, to do what we could. And I, I just had a I had a vision of, you know, the Hoddle Street Massacre and Queen Street Massacre in Melbourne mm. and Stratfield Massacre in Sydney. Because back, as you said before, anybody had a gun. And, um, Although it was after... Yeah, it was before Port Arthur, so it was still open yeah. slather. So essentially raced in there and, you know, made it, made sure a cordon was happening and I ran up the steps and I had a pair of jeans and a polo shirt and hair was always a bit longer than normal and uh, I raced up the stairs to see what was going on and essentially peeked around the corner and here was this guy sitting on the floor with a, a cardboard cart and a rifle and some army webbing. And um, he basically said put the gun down or I'll blow the whole fucking place up. And why didn't you come in and talk to me? And I have no idea why. I just I actually did something I never thought I'd do. Handed my firearm to another another uniformed cop nearby and took a couple of steps in and then spent an hour and a half talking to him. Frank had been uh, to Vietnam, come back with trauma. He'd, like a lot of blokes, had you know, failed marriage. He had the Thursday night, this was a Saturday afternoon, on the Thursday, he'd been to the MLC building, which was an insurance and um, superannuation company. Uh, he had spoken to a bloke about cashing his super in because he couldn't make his child maintenance payments. And this bloke laughed at him and just said, oh, you can't, you, you'll have to pay us money, he, he, he. And uh, he went home, dug up a night that he'd had there for God knows how long, made an IED, so an improvised explosive device, it had three electronic detonators, or he meant business, Sydney.
0: this guy.
1: He knew what he was doing, yeah, because he'd, he'd been a combat engineer, it turned out, in Vietnam. And uh, then he got an old uh, 175, I think, 175 trail bike, put the IED, <laughs> balanced it on the fuel tank, put his army webbing on, strapped the rifle that across his shoulder. That could have went wrong
0: before he even got there.
1: Oh, shit, mate. If a uniform cops had, sto- had seen him and stopped him, who the hell knows what would happen? Mm. And he drove in, he fired a couple of shots in the, sen- in the foyer, told the security guard to get out and um his plan was to just sit there and blow himself up and you know hopefully bring the building down yeah. and instead yeah he and i sat there and thank god i was able to talk him out of it
0: did you relate to his trauma did you read it you know like you would you you to have that sort of conversation and to connect something with a guy like that you would have had a shitload in common with him
1: you're right you're absolutely right mate um you know when I first got in there, I saw that in the way he was holding his weapon, and you know finger across the trigger guard instinctively, and I thought, Jesus, that i i'd been I'd been bomb trained. so you know when I got closer and sat down and uh, and he's smoking cigarettes and <laughs> over this explosive, um, <laughs> and he, he tossed me, I said, "What do you got in the box mate and he tossed me a half a stick of sweaty night, which meant that the nitroglycerin was actually um, sweating its way through the outer covering of Jellic Night which means it's incredibly unstable so firstly you shouldn't throw it around secondly you shouldn't smoke over it and uh, and and as we just talked uh, you know like i was saying before mate you talk to people you get a sense of who they are and and i just started a a conversation with him that I, i i manipulated it's probably the best way into thinking it's just he and he and me against the world and it just came out then that he'd been in Vietnam and at one stage when I um, I talked him into giving the rifle up because I swapped it for a pot of beer and you're never supposed to do that and just me not obeying the rules again. And uh, so I had a pot of beer, got him another paper of cigarettes and I just thought, fuck we're going to... If this thing goes, we're both going to die and without doubt. As I was talking about everything, he produced a hand grenade (laughs) and, uh, Mm. and pulled the pin out and actually said, that's it. That's it. I'm going to do it. And he said, "Get out while you can." And I, I, remember. And mate, this is not bravado. This is just. This is how it made me feel. Because I was going through my own shit. And I said, "Mate, I've got enough fucking nightmares in my life now. You're not going to be another one. Can you just please put the fucking pin back in?" I said, "Mate, put the pin back in. I'm not going to let you do this." And uh, and he must have seen something then. And and you know, because I remember he looked at me. And went, "Oh, okay." put the pin back in, and uh, and then all I had to do was talk him out of blowing the bomb, detonating the device, which sounds easy, but it took, took a little bit of work. You know, Yeah, I saw the trauma for sure, and, and I reckon he saw it in me too.
0: Yeah, often I say it takes one to know one. Mm-hmm. I believe that. I think we read when people have been, I, I, I do it for a living, I can pick a survivor, uh, what I, I I know that he give you when he got sentenced. You were there when he got sentenced for that, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I went to the committal, um, the committal magistrate's court hearing uh, to be referred to the
0: district, district court, court, yeah, or the supreme, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah and uh, and I gave evidence, and and I genuinely felt for Frank. I, I just really did because I've got a soft spot for veterans and. And anybody who's been through trauma, you know, and um, and I gave my evidence in in a way that probably the police prosecutor wasn't too happy with, because I just said, "Yeah, you know, in my in my opinion, this guy's damaged. Absolutely, he's been through trauma. I don't know that he intended to kill me on that that day, even though he said he did. I don't know." Um, and I and I was giving evidence as much as I could to try and impress that, get it on the record that you know he, he actually he was struggling, he was suffering, and uh, and when I walked out and this and. People have asked me what the proudest part of being a my police career was, and I reckon this was it. Because I walked past and he, he said, Keith, can you stop for a minute? And I stopped and he was in the dock um, and he put his hand, he was handcuffed, and he put his hands out and he said, I just want to shake your hand and say it and thank you for saving my life. How good's that? That was fucking awesome, mate, I'll tell you.
0: Yeah. You go from wanting to be homicidal, and you're homicidal, yeah. to, to actually saving a life. How? What a good yeah. way to turn things around.
1: Yeah, for both of us. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and that's that's well picked up, mate, because it, I lapsed back into that tactical mode when I turned up to that job and, and the dark side came out again because I was fully prepared to drop to drilling mm. without remorse, without hesitation. And when that happened, I remember reflecting on that and I still reflect on it now and thinking, wow, what a, what a great, I don't know, coincidental thing to happen to, to help me understand that, the real That's man universal, wasn't that? You know,
0: that was a unit. That was a god job, or universal, or silent Was yeah, in yeah. That right, the right, you were the right man for the right job at the time. You know, that was your purpose. I, I,
1: yeah, thanks, mate. I I, I think I was. Um, look, I was told that at the time, but you know, you just it's it's one of those um, great Australian things. It still embarrasses me a bit to talk about my medals because it seems like I'm pushing myself up. But
0: and you got awarded uh, a bravery medal for that, didn't you?
1: I did. Yeah. What, what, what's yeah. the
0: name of the medal? What's...
1: It's the Australian Bravery Medal. Yeah. So in the, um, in the Australian Order of Awards, the highest is the Cross of Valor. Yeah. Um, that's similar to the Victoria Cross. And mm. the Star of Courage, then the Bravery Medal. So it's, that's the, the ranking of it. But I also got two police valour medals as well. One was for the shooting where Peter was murdered, and, um, and I got a valour medal for this from the cops as well. And, I, and I'm proud of them, but I'm... I'll tell you, you shoot sure Oh, thanks, mate. Thank you. No, you but really I, I,
0: should, man. That's a great achievement. That, like, that's a really touching story. That, what you know, here's a guy that served his country, and, and you know, and his reward was, like yourself, the similarities. You, you know, you're here protecting the community. You just get dumped in the community. So did he. He got no support. Yeah. You got no support, and you're bonded by a tragic event.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And and mate, you know, I, I do. I do think the universe that it was me that turned up and. And that doesn't, I don't want to sound arrogant or anything, but um, I was different from most coppers, mm. you know. So, I, yeah, I took a course of action that probably not a lot of them would take.
0: Yeah. Particularly,
1: particularly breaking the rules, you know. Because I said to him initially, what's it going to take for me to get the rifle, mate? He said, a six-pack. I went, nah, no, I can't get a six-pack. What about a pot of beer?
0: What about <laughs> that horrible Forex stuff? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was too. <laughs> Nearly poisoned him. Um, after that, how long ago, how long after that sort of, did you, you sort of leave the police force? When did you decide you'd had enough?
1: Oh, mate, I reckon it'd be another 18 months yeah. after that. Well,
0: that's not long.
1: <laughs> no, because, look, I, I was just... I was broken, and I knew there was something wrong with me, but there was still no understanding of PTSD in those days. But what, what really tipped, the, um, tipped it for me was I applied to be promoted... I was a detective sergeant, um, promotion to the next rank-up. And so I went for the interview, didn't get the job, that's OK... I went back for some feedback, and uh, and I spoke with this this supercilious, smarmy boss, a superintendent, um, and I said, oh, look, just like some feedback, you know, what can I improve on for the next thing, etc." cetera. Um, anyway, he gave me this whole spiel about how, um, you know, my emergency, my, my decision-making in emergency situations needed work, and I'm thinking, really? Um, mm-hmm. And he bullshitted for a while, and at the end of it, I just said, look, Let's cut the crap, boss. What's the problem? And he said, he said, all right, you want the truth, I'll tell you the truth. Um, sort of like a few good men. You can't handle
0: <laughs> the truth. <laughs> he,
1: said, he said, your personality is a problem. And I said, what do you mean? He said, um, you're too outspoken. You're too rebellious. Um, you challenge authority. You have to understand that if you want to be promoted, it's you need not to be on their side, as in my mates, mm-hmm. as in the, the troops. You need to be with us. You know, there's us and them. Etc. And I went, wow. And he said, uh, and, he said and the public side, I'd had publicity because of the medals. He said, your publicity is not doing you any favours either. And I went, right, guess what? My personality is not going to change. I'll always support my people because they are bloody good people and they're the ones that look after me literally in life and death situations. I'll always challenge authority where stupid decisions are made by stupid people and just gave it back to him. And at the end of it, I just said, "And by the way, just be very careful in here, superintendent, because those paper cuts can be a bitch."
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I
1: walked out, and that's when I pretty much I thought, know. "I don't fit the mould anymore," and maybe I never did. And at the same time, I was being headhunted out by a, a guy I knew into going working in the corporate world. And I went out to dinner with him, and I said, "What do you want me for, mate? I'm just a copper." And he, you know what he said, "You can't make this stuff up." He said. I love the way you support people. I love the way you challenge authority. I love the way that you're outspoken. I love the, all the stuff I was being told that I was no good at being a copper.
0: That's all the key ingredients in the corporate world mm. and, and a successful business. And unfortunately, they're the the ingredients that public service don't like.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's, and, and policing culture, mate, I was asked, I was actually on a panel recently in a Rethink Addiction conference in Canberra. Um, about my views about decriminalisation and legalisation mm. of drugs. And, um, and someone said, oh, you know, why do the police in Australia don't... Why don't they follow the UK model where UK senior police are talking about can't arrest your way out of the problem, you know, decriminalise, legalise? And I said, because to be a senior cop in Australia, you have to start at the bottom. By the time you get to that rank, you're completely socialised, mm. completely. And you're doing the bidding of the government anyway. You know, there's no independence anymore. You know, so you almost got to say if you're if you're putting new ideas, <laughs> have a warning cover letter that says, "Be careful. This contains innovation, because it <laughs> might scare you." And and that's what it's like. Mate. You know, it's. Um,
0: I've always said. I've always said that, and I talk about pedophiles, and I, and you know, you, you talk about yeah. pedophiles create a stimulus, right? So. The judges are soft on them because they create the next drug addict, they create the next violent offender, the prostitute, and self harm. So, mm. and then out of that, they get great policing, prison officers, parole officers, and that sort of thing. So it creates that that stimulus. Mm. And then I think that's the, the same goes. I love, I love your approach to drug. The Portugal approach is mm. is the way to go. It's yeah. definitely, but it's going to take. I don't think our government's open-minded enough to ever get there.
1: You know what, mate? It's interesting. The
0: ACT have just done it. Yeah, 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 I'll notice that. Wow.
1: But with with the rest, you know, so the two major parties, Labor and Lib, whichever your politics mm-hmm. is, doesn't matter because they neither of them have the courage to say, if let's start with cannabis. If we legalise cannabis tomorrow, we take all the organised criminal activity out of it. We tax it. We regulate the quality, <clears throat> and then we put that tax take, <coughs> excuse me, into health and education
0: yeah. bonus. But they won't
1: do it because they're both too concerned about losing the conservative vote. But here's my counter. Think of how many people who use dope recreationally, who think it's absolutely no problem, may well switch their voting allegiance and vote them in. Yeah. But they're not, not seeing that, you
0: know. It's good to get that from your point of view because, you know, the Ray Hadleys that have got no idea... This law and order, mm-hmm. the banging the law and order drama and, you know, locking them up and throwing away the key will solve the problem. Treat them like animals and they'll get out and act like humans. You know that yeah. doesn't work. I know that doesn't oh, work. I,
1: yeah, you're, you're not wrong. You remember the old days when people got bashed in Long Bay and Grafton and Boggo Road and, you know. Created every psychopaths. Time, every time a cream went in, made his first day, he'd get flogged. That doesn't create better humans. There was, there's a,
0: a, there's, there was some research on that when they'd done this research on uh, Billy Monday, Baker mm. Crump, Ivan Mil- all, all of these really bad killers and and, and the common denominator become and where they're getting bashed, the shit bashed out of them and yeah. so they'll create and, you know, I, I ask questions on my social media, are psychopaths created I believe they are. They're that badly desensitised and you face that in your line of work, you become that badly se- sensitised, you become, you know, basically psychopathic, homicidal or whatever.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I was on my way. Yeah. I was on my way. I just realised... You know, I, I
0: recognised it, thank God. Man, you're amazing to talk to, and your your description of, of trauma and your knowledge of is dead is, set so refreshing and, and, and some a man of your stature to hear that, this is what politicians should be hearing. You know, this no, is what thanks. the general the general public should be hearing this. You've got a very open mind and, and you know what I mean, you're fucking these rednecks and narrow minded no. people, these decision makers, are fucking not serving us any well. No, they're
1: not, mate. They're just bloody worried about focus groups and, and you know, and what their advisors tell them, and you know, it's just time for us to understand that we've got to change the way we deal with drugs. The the war on drugs was lost before it started.
0: I used an analogy on the weekend, right? And the analogy was, it's like a game of football, right? Six hundred nil at half time, but the mm-hmm. police and the politicians come in and say we can win this with more funding. <laughs>
1: That's right.
0: Mm. <laughs> mm.
1: And it's never it's mate you know, human beings have been using drugs for thousands of years since time immemorial. Mm. You know, the American Indians use peyote. Um, mm. all of that. All of that stuff. Mm. And and we have to understand even pill testing, mate, it drives me mental that there's such an opposition to pill testing at festivals. Mm. Young kids are gonna drop E. That's,
0: That's happening. the way. Yeah. It,
1: so let's understand that the people selling them those tabs aren't always quality controlled. So let's give them an opportunity to go, hey, this thing you're going to drop in your mouth is not good. Yeah. It's not going to create a whole wave of young kids going, oh, it's okay, now I'll start using drugs because it's happening anyway.
0: That's and crazy. And I just
1: don't get the common There's no common sense behind those decisions.
0: Oh, man, I heard some ad this morning. I was listening to the TV at 2 o'clock in the morning Wake Up and they're banging, the Americans banging the law, law and order drum, you know, lock them up and throw away the key. They're, they're going to, these pot smokers are going to escalate and they're going to be bank robbers and they're going to be, oh, whatever, you know, like, please. And that's what we need. People like yourself, lived experience and obviously, obviously I'd love to be able to do some work with you some time down the track yeah. and do some of, oh, man, I'd do it in a heartbeat. I'd love to oh, do, okay. like, I'd love to jump on panels with you on that and talk about this sort of de- decriminalisation because that's the way to go.
1: Oh and mate, I'd be there in a heartbeat as well, mate. You know, you and I'd be, um, you and I'd be, it'd be interesting, wouldn't it? The perception. Yeah. Of people
0: but how can they get away with it, around the authenticity of it from both sides of the fence? It's like, oh yeah. well, a cop would have a different say. That me and you agreeing on the same things, where yeah. have they got to go after that?
1: Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. There's a lot of people out there like us, mate. The trouble is, I think a lot of people are worried about being judged because they have a viewpoint that doesn't fit the norm.
0: Yeah. And that's both of us, mate. That's both of us. Yeah, but on that note, yeah. Keith, once th- you know, this has been an amazing, it's one of the most enjoyable conversations I've ever had. And, um, man, and, and like your own transformation and, and dead set, you're an asset to humanity um, in regards to your way you can articulate trauma and your honesty is another level. Well,
1: thanks.
0: Have, have yeah, your okay. honesty is another level. Your open-mindedness, man, they can't teach that, you know that's just a, that's yeah, your thanks. gift that is that is your gift you, your, your mind is so open and you're a real lateral thinker amazing dead set dead set pleasure to have uh, done this podcast today with you Keith Banks thanks for being on the stick up
1: thanks Russ it's been awesome to chat to you too mate and if ever you won't get down this way let's catch up and have that coffee